Hey there, and welcome to Plus One with your old buddy, CH. I have with me Jeff Gomez, the CEO of Starlight Runner and the godfather of Transmedia. Hi, Jeff. Hey there, Chris. What's going on? Lots, lots to talk about. So why don't we start with your background just to tell the audience who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm Jeff Gomez. I am uh, the CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment. We're a New York-based uh, production company. I'm a producer by trade, uh, which means that I, I try to see the forest for the trees um, and, and help to assemble, in this case, large franchise story worlds. So this is a very specific kind of producer. Some call it a transmedia producer. But effectively, the Hollywood studios, video game companies, book publishers, uh, even Fortune 500 uh, companies will come to me and they'll say, well, we have this narrative, we have this story, or we have this script, um, but we need for it to be effective over the course of, of uh, a lot of time and across multiple media platforms. In the old days, you used to be able to repeat the content over and over again until you've drained every uh, me media platform, uh, repeats and advertisement and the novelization and the audio book and, and so forth. Um, people don't tend to like that repetitive nature anymore. Uh, when they pay for and visit different media platforms and have a favorite kind of story world, they want to hear a new story, one that leverages the features of that specific media platform. And that's where you're getting the rise of these transmedia franchises like Star Wars and Harry Potter and The Walking Dead and the superhero stuff. What are some of the larger franchises that you've worked on? Uh, I go all the way back to the, the 1990s when... I had to sneak around to get my multimedia fix with the stuff I was working with. My first video game franchise was Turok Dinosaur Hunter for the Nintendo 64, which had been a comic book, but then needed to be a video game and then needed to behave on the web in certain ways. That was very successful. And I moved on to Magic the Gathering. So I was involved with Wizards of the Coast in helping to fabricate a story world that tied together all those hundreds and hundreds of trading cards and create some kind of cohesive universe. And that allowed me to write comic books that sold in the millions and develop video games. And I love the idea of a kind of orchestrated, concerted rollout behind the story, the epic stories that I wanted to tell. In 2000, I formed Starlight Runner and immediately went to work for Mattel on Hot Wheels, uh, again, developing uh, for the first time, really, a, a massive fictional universe that tied together dozens of those cars and created characters and storylines for the first time uh, in mass for the company. With Disney, there was Pirates of the Caribbean, Tron Legacy, Fairy. Which we worked together on, right? That's right. Yes. Oh, that's where I met you. Right. We met there. And Disney was really interesting because Oren Aviv, he was the chief creative officer at the time. He had this innate knowledge that something wasn't working with regard to the way that narrative was being communicated across the entire company. Um, they were leaving money on the table. And so he assigned us pirates uh, in order for us to, to create a cohesive kind of canonical story world that could operate across all of their divisions and in licensing and merchandising. And that really formed the basis for the Disney franchise clearinghouse that uh, reiterated itself for Tron and now is the basis for things like Star Wars and Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then after that, you've been working on Ultraman and some other properties, right? Uh, uh, Avatar was a big breakthrough uh, uh, for us, working with James Cameron and getting the Producers Guild to to see what it was exactly that we did. Um, this kind of being the maestro across multiple divisions of of these uh, uh, big media companies, and they attributed this transmedia producer credit uh, to that that specific kind of work, which wow. was. 
because it, it got us health insurance and increased our quote and put value to this bizarrely nerdy thing that we were doing. And then we got our first overall transmedia producer deal with Amy Pascal at Sony Pictures. And we worked on Spider-Man, Men in Black, and Venom. Wow, that's that's awesome stuff. So you most recently was Ultraman, where a Japanese company that had this kind of local evergreen property, Ultraman's like their Superman, a giant who fights these big kaiju monsters. It had been off the market for decades because of a, a legal issue, an international legal issue. They had resolved it and came to me and said, Ultraman, the genre and the type of story that is, it had been since repeated many, many times, Power Rangers, Pacific Rim, all, all this stuff had come out. So we want to re-enter the market, but what can we do to distinguish this brand and generate interest in it and proliferate it? And so my job for the past few years has been to talk to my friends at Marvel Comics to license Ultraman to help with Netflix proliferating Japanese anime, and now an original Netflix feature film uh, with animation from Industrial Light and Magic that'll be out next year, and just move it out of the nostalgia space and into the superhero space. And that's been a, a, an enormous pleasure because I love that stuff, as you know. <laughs> the superhero space is definitely something we should talk about. Oh, uh, yeah. In a minute. But I want to highlight something that you said a second ago, which is that when you started out in your career, you started off in video games and comic books and what used to be uncharitably called at the studios, the ancillary businesses. And then you fought your way into the studio and even to being respected by the producers guild as actual producers. So can you talk a little bit about that journey with transmedia from this wacky idea to something that has become accepted as the way you build franchises at these major studios? There were two components of this that I was obsessed with since I was a little kid. N number one was when I fell in love with these, these imaginary worlds, there was something in my mind that wanted these things to make sense. So I'd yeah. watch these Planet of the Apes movies and try to think to myself, how does that work? This strange little cycle of films or the Godzilla movies and, and so forth. And people were just making it up as they went along <laughs> until... I got into comics, the Marvel Universe and the DC Universe, some effort was made to create a consistent canon. And certainly Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and, and th that universe really was tooled and designed to be a persistent uh, universe. I wanted that for the Hollywood stuff that I loved and did not get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. The second thing that I yearned for was having a voice. I wish they would listen to me. <laughs> I want to be a part of this world. And when I buy a video game that was set in those worlds in the 80s and 90s, it was not the case. <laughs> they were treated like idiot stepchildren, licensing and merchandising and so forth. And I felt disrespected, frankly, when that happened. So in my experiments in the 90s with Torok and Magic, not only did I bring a design sensibility inspired by Tolkien and Stan Lee to the projects I was working on, I also gave out my email address <laughs> and started talking directly with fans. And, and when that happened, there was this tremendous response. Uh, I call it fan ardor. They loved me and hence loved because I was listening to them and loved the results of that dialogue because they saw it in the intellectual property. And that built a community which was based on the internet. This was new. And so when I started as a result of the success to talk to movie studios, they said, well, you're crazy. We, we don't deal with fans. We're not interested in, in what they think. They're stupid. They don't get it. They don't understand the business. Ignore them. It can only be trouble. And yes, fans can be troublesome. <laughs> but I didn't believe that. Uh, I started to espouse an architecture for dialogue that needs to be built 
into your uh, transmedia implementation, to your communication of the story world. You validate fans for their uh, participation and, and their creativity and their desire to share their love for this universe with their friends and colleagues. And that started to form a methodology that I started to apply to these projects in the early aughts. Got it. One of the big things you just said is the importance of listening to the audience and being tuned into the audience. And you and I have both surfed this incredible wave of the internet and fandom where a lot of the things that we were interested in, like cult movies and comics and all the video games and these things were considered niche and they become mainstream. When we were working together on Tron, those were the golden days of Comic-Con where studios had not really acknowledged fans or interacted with fans in any way. Fast forward to today, uh, most of the studios have their own events. Uh, DC has their DC Van Zone event. Disney has D23 and it has Star Wars Celebration. Celebration has been going for a really long time. So this has become very normalized as part of the way that you run a major franchise that has a large fandom. But the relationship between the studios and the fandom has definitely turned, I would say, adversarial over the last several years for a variety of different reasons. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the culture war uh, in this uh, podcast, but do you think it's still possible in the current social media environment to engage with the audience to build a productive, positive relationship with audiences or, or are audiences too jaded and too critical? And are you putting yourself at risk by engaging too much in the internet? I think there's, there's a solution and I'm surprised and saddened that more studios, and these include video game companies and so forth, are not adhering to it. I'm so surprised that sometimes I think they think there's a benefit in being adversarial with fans yeah. uh, to create media noise and things like that. And that's just really unfortunate because it does fan the flames of these culture wars. It's simple, Chris. If you are creating a story that is being told on a planetary level, a, a worldwide media event, a, a major motion picture, a, a massive video game, chances are that the characters and the uh, ethos of this product is um, are aspirational. They're positive. And when you speak with the fans, you stand behind those aspirational qualities. No matter what they say, no matter what their response, Yoda is Yoda. <laughs> if you behave like the greatest Jedi, mm -hmm. And somebody is attacking you for whatever reason, you put a girl in charge of the movie and so forth, you can speak above all that and, mm -hmm. and continue to press forward and acknowledge occasionally you make a mistake and you go, well, sorry about that. Or, hey, here's what we represent. If you don't like it, here's a different product in the product line. Try that. But to tell a fan... You must be a racist if you feel this way. You must be mm -hmm. a sexist if you feel that this way. Whether it's me as a corporation or the stars of my movies who represent these iconic characters, that's asking for trouble that you don't need. Don't make war with your customer. It, yeah. That to me is the solution. And it is, by the way, the thing that we've been doing with Ultraman. What does Ultraman represent? Courage, hope, and kindness. So we stick to that in our communication, even if fans don't like an episode or don't even like an entire Ultraman series and, and so forth. Sorry about that. Have you tried Ultraman Mebius? Have you tried Ultraman Z? It, it really resonates with me because when I ran Club Penguin, I made the decision to take Lane's place as the spokesperson for Club Penguin. I thought it was important that whoever came next would listen to the fans and do active listening in the same way. And so I was very like you giving away your email address. I was on Twitter and a lot of the kids that I was dealing with were middle school kids, <laughs> some of them early high school, not the most mature in their behavior. And I definitely found moments where it was difficult because there was one 
blogger who was constantly negative about Club Penguin and would say terrible things about me. And all the other kids on Twitter would jump on her and try to bully her to try to defend Club Penguin. And I would come in and say, hey, guys, these aren't our values. This isn't what we do. This isn't the Penguin thing to do. And it was amazing to me how the tone completely shifted. And one thing that I think that studios forget is that they have the ability to change the dialogue. And what you just said makes so much sense to me, which is that if you have this franchise, and and it's part of my problem with what's happened creatively with a lot of these franchises, particularly Lucas, is that I I feel like they don't understand the nature of the force uh, anymore, and they think it's a superpower. If you believe in your values, if you believe in what being a Jedi means, then you can appeal to those because they are the shared touchstone somewhere between you and your audience, right? And you can lead people back to the light side, which is what Luke ultimately did with his father at the end of The Return of the Jedi. So the Exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating that you're very right that when you jump on your audience and do what Captain America wouldn't do, there are some people who definitely want those characters to scold the audience and put them in their place. But it's not productive, ultimately. The reason people are there are the aspirational values. That's right, are the aspirational values. And living like the heroes in your movies or or your entertainment properties is just the way to go. Why else are they there? Are they really there to fight you? Are they really there to fight each other? They might argue over trivia. And that's fun sometimes but when when it starts to drill into the foundations of your intellectual property those foundations are going to start to crack and you're going to set people against each other so that whole silos of your brand are being pitted against each other and that's it's never a good idea you could say well the numbers don't indicate that that the culture war issues are having a significant impact on Star Wars. Maybe not yesterday, (laughs) but today, walk up and down the aisle at Target. Mm -hmm. There's a problem. Mm -hmm. That brings us to the current state of these franchises and transmedia. I was interested to see recently that David Zaslav said in an earnings announcement that transmedia is the future of where they're going to go. And I think he was referring actually to the Hogwarts Legacy game, which woke a lot of people up in Hollywood to what a major entertainment franchise-based video game could do for a franchise. So so when he talks about transmedia, I think he means video games. But when you look at what James Gunn is looking to do with DC, it definitely seems more ambitious in the direction that you would advocate. So at one level, we're seeing studio executives say, transmedia is very important. At another level, a lot of these franchises are in shambles. What happened? (laughs) Um, Here's what happened. I I study story, and a major aspect of story is genre. Dating back to the start of motion pictures, there are cycles. Uh, You you can see them play out over and over again across a, a multitude of genres. You start out experimenting, that's stage one, where you're creating Iron Man for the first time, and it's going to use all of these new technologies, and it's going to adhere much more closely to the comics, and everyone's not going to be wearing a black leather jumpsuit, (laughs) uh, and so forth. It's really going to be comic-like. And of course, uh, uh, Kevin Feige met with success there. Then there is the classic stage two of genre, where you get your Captain America, your Avengers, your Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Mummy, these iconic versions of these movies. Stage three is really cool because then you get refinement. You get your Winter Soldier, your Guardians of the Galaxy, your Bride of Frankenstein, which was a great movie, or or Dracula's Daughter, where you're really starting to cook with the genre. You run through those ideas, so then you start to get Baroque, the fourth aspect of genre, where you get your Deadpool and your WandaVision. Things get a little weird. They even get reflexive. They start to comment on themselves Mm -hmm. and and so forth. That's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. (laughs) Then there is the fifth genre component, which is, I believe, where we are, deconstruction. 
deconstruction. You'll remember deconstruction from the comics mm -hmm. because uh, uh, people like Alan Moore and Frank Miller mm -hmm. uh, began to pull apart the superhero genre to create the Dark Knight um, or, or to create Watchmen. So there are masterpieces that are uh, uh, possible in this kind of final phase of genre. But the problem, the danger in deconstruction is that you're diluting your characters. It's twin syndrome, right? In soap mm. operas and uh, TV shows, you bring in the twin because you're running out of ideas or you mm -hmm. shoot the characters into space, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, there's no longer one Batman. There's a bunch of Batmans because you're not paying attention. So the Batman cartoon is different from the Batman feature cartoon, which is different from all these different Batman live action versions. You start to mock yourself, mm -hmm. uh, your continuity, your canon starts to unravel. And literally the visual of unraveling is mm -hmm. in all of these movies, in the Flash, in the Marvel uh, movies. You're recasting and you're destroying your sub-reality. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Feige has done this for a good reason, I think ostensibly, he wants to think of a canonical way to bring in the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and have his cake and eat it too and, and maintain the, the canon that he's established. Um, I believe he just depended a little too much on the goodwill of his audience and the patience of his audience to sit through these massively entangled narratives and in terms of what Warner Brothers did, they never cared about canon in, in the first place. Uh, Warner Brothers was an auteur-driven situation, sort of like Kathleen Kennedy with Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take my multi-billion dollar baby and put it in the lap of an auteur. They're a great director. They'll know what to do. Knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. and, and you can get something great like... Mm -hmm. The, the Dark Knight Returns, or, mm -hmm. or you can get something just terrible. The most recent Thor movie left a lot to be desired. And he's an auteur. He's great, uh, Taika Waititi. So there's no consistency because these giant franchises require a, a strong mm -hmm. vision. And that's what they found in James Gunn, potentially. Uh, he hasn't proven himself at this level yet. And that's what they do have in Kevin Feige, although, of course, Kevin has been spread a bit thin under JPEG to pump out a million different Marvel projects. So I think that's the state of the situation with all of these big franchises. I think that's right. And I think something that resonates there is as you get into these postmodern deconstructionist takes of the characters, it's easy to do the thing where, okay, how do we subvert the character Instead of Superman being good, he's evil. Instead of being uh, a man, he's a woman. You you wind up doing these kind of stunt castings and um, things that create dramatically different takes or alternate realities. But it ultimately comes at a cost, to your point, to the core character. You could do some of that. But if that's all you're doing, and I think that's what has happened especially with DC where they literally have what three or four people who have been playing Batman over the last half decade. That's and right. still they have two different guys playing Batman or maybe three. Right. And, um, and now a new one coming soon. Yeah. It's confusing to the audience. One area where you and I have disagreed in the past is that I like some of those all takes. I love the Joker. I'm sure you love the Joker uh, as well as a piece of standalone art. I think the Elseworlds conceit that DC has come up with is a good way to do that. But to your point of consistency, which you usually argue for, is the more you do something like that and the more you leave the door open to, oh, there's a multiverse and there's all these different versions and blah, 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 blah. We get back into the spaghetti. It's too tempting to open that door and go back through, don't you think? It, it It is tempting, and that's a problem. We have to move on past this uh, multiverse thing. It's not helpful. Brands uh, signify themselves by being unique. <laughs> if you have a hundred of something, uh, that type of character, then who cares anymore? You're literally dividing up your audience. It's okay to have Peter Parker and Miles Morales. They're, mm -hmm. they're 
know. But but once you have a, a thousand different Spider-Man characters, you'd better wrap that story up uh, fairly soon because then you're going to start to watch your audience sift itself to spider punk and, and, and so forth. And you're diluting the power of the most popular superhero. So it's something that they have to be careful with and need to get through relatively quickly. And the answer to that, the way out of this is something that no one is doing nearly enough. And that is called narrative design. Mm -hmm. What's your plan? Homer was a fantastic narrative designer. He created a 900-page poem about Odysseus. And you can go through these phases of Odysseus's journey, and each one is an epic. It could be like a series of movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you go to the next phase, and there's that series. And you move through the man's life. Mm-hmm. You know? The Iliad is the prequel, and that's another bunch of phases. And and that's a a narrative that does not repeat itself and can go on for years and years. That's a design sensibility that ought to be applied to these major franchises so that we don't rapidly run through these cycles and burn the audience out on repetition and doubling and tripling and quadrupling. Yeah, one thing I really enjoyed when we worked together on Tron and it's always been a heartbreaker. Tron will always be the one that got away from me in yeah. some sense. But one of the things I liked about working with you, as opposed to a lot of the other practitioners of so-called transmedia, was that your approach, I thought, was always about enabling people. So I remember we had this huge timeline of Tron that wrapped all the way around one of the biggest conference rooms in the ABC Riverside building at Disney. Chris, that was one of the most awesome meetings in my life. That was so cool. That was awesome. And you guys had scoped out on that timeline. Here are the events of the original film. Here's what we know about the new film. And then these are a bunch of areas to be explored. And we went around the, the room and it was like, okay, video game guys, you explore this aspect of the canon like allocation we were parsing it out and there was such joy people got excited because they felt like what they were doing in this vast mousy corporation was to take ownership of of a portion of a canon instead of repeating something that somebody else is doing or just having to go off by themselves and make up something that looks vaguely like tron they were taking charge of a piece of the timeline. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. And it was giving you, you cheered us on. You, you were creatives great. and as creative people who were worth respecting and who could bring something unique because they came at it from a different lens. And so everyone in that room felt really empowered and really excited to work on their part where not to pick on anyone, but I will to, to contrast working with Lucas, one of the, th- my theories about happened with Lucas is that after the prequels, they weren't making any movies. So they got rid of everybody who came from the Hollywood side. Mm -hmm. So you had Dave Filoni and those guys who were making the TV shows and Dave spent a lot of time with George. But other than that, all that was left really were the lawyers who did the consumer products deals. And one of the things I noticed is that they wound up taking over the franchise. And so when we acquired Lucas and we're dealing with the franchise team, every single one of them was a lawyer. And the thing about lawyers is they want to lawyer things. So their approach to the franchise was, here's a bunch of rules and you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other thing. And maybe we want to do this in the future. So don't do that. They didn't just do it to like the game people or the comic book people or whatever. They also did it to JJ Abrams. And Mm -hmm. you heard him talk about that in the press where he felt very restrained by the story team. So I wonder if you could talk about those different approaches to how you really get all these different creative minds engaged in a common creative process. There, there is a, a methodology. It's the one that signified uh, a Starlight Runner and, and what I've done, whether it's with a movie studio or Coca-Cola or the government of Columbia, <laughs> this applies. And it's basically this, Chris, 
what what is the nature of of this intellectual property? What does it stand for? What is its underlying ethos? Uh, what is the wisdom system, and and how does the wisdom system get reflected in the system of narrative? The system of narrative. That's been the toughest part to get across to both uh, attorneys and studio heads who are used to the fact that the sum total of what it is that they're working with. The merchandise is a screenplay, which is linear, 120 uh, pages long, and that's it. And we have to say, no, it's this vast creative work. It's a body of work that has to have integrity what are the things that comprise that integrity? What is the essence of this brand? And you define that, you write it down, and you hand it to everyone involved. Of course, stakeholders, it's not me that's defining it 100%. I do have my thoughts, but it's a reflection of the key stakeholders involved, including the originator of the intellectual property. Dave Filoni, uh, the, his nickname for a, a certain period by certain people was Cartoon Boy. In, in other words, what he's doing doesn't count. Uh, and Lucas indulges him because Lucas is into what Lucas is into. And so that animation had no respect, none at all. It was meant to fill time on on the Disney Channel or Cartoon Network, whatever. Yet it, in in our world, uh, he signified some somebody who had deep respect and a desire to understand, for example, what the force was and what it meant and how it applied, mm -hmm. what its rules were and so forth. And so you must integrate him as a stakeholder into the brand essence in order to give everyone the same uh, handbook, mm -hmm. the same guide. It doesn't mean you cannot break these rules. But you'd better know what rule you're breaking and you'd better be creative about how it breaks. And then you can have your orange lightsaber. Mm. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? So that's that's step one to getting everyone uh, on the same page. Once everyone agrees on that uh, mythology, we call these things mythologies. Once everybody agrees, then it's easier to parse the responsibilities out. And it's easier to defend and protect this body legally and to make sure your brand maintains its integrity and, and to dialogue with the fans with integrity. The closest we were offered years ago was Leland Chi, right? He was wonderful. He was a lore master. He knew everything everywhere uh, and so forth. And so people were handed this database. The, the holocron, right? There you go. Right. Yes. Yeah. The holocron. Very good. But it doesn't contain the pure soul uh, of this systemic narrative that has to be documented and disseminated as well. And it wasn't, uh, Chris. And that's where you ran into a lot of bumps on that Star Wars role. Yeah, I found that being inside of it, mm -hmm. they put together this story council and Lucas had never had such a thing. Right. There was only George right. and he made all the calls. But they put together this story council and it had a lot of consumer products people, video game people. And it's great that it was inclusive of everyone. But a lot of the people sitting on it were business people. They weren't story people or there were people that Kathleen Kennedy had brought from Hollywood who were Hollywood people or TV people, but they weren't Lucas people. And so if you looked at the representation on that group, most of the people who were sitting on that council were not. Lucas Torchholders. When you talk about the mythology, and I'll run my theory by you of what has gone wrong with Star Wars, and I want to get your reaction, sure. is that there's the mythology, and then I think there's the artifacts, which are the lightsabers, the ships, the stormtroopers, the iconic stuff, right? And I think that modern Lucas has gotten caught up in the iconography and the artifacts of Star Wars and forgotten what the Force is about. Because the thing to me is that Luke doesn't win in Return of the Jedi. Well, first of all, he doesn't really win. His his father steps in and, and saves the day. But he doesn't go into that confrontation as the greatest Jedi of all time. Right. In fact, Yoda dies 
and he never really completes his training. So the reason that he is able to win his father back is because of this outpouring of love and the fact that he won't fight and the fact that he won't kill his father and he won't give into his anger. And that's what brought his father down originally. And so by doing that, he shows his father a path back to the light side that everyone else thought was closed. And I think that what happened, and it really manifested Rise of Skywalker, where Rey winds up having to channel all the power of all the Jedi in order to defeat Palpatine, who's channeling all the power of the dark side. And you start treating the Force as this superpower. You get into this feature creep where who's got the most power? That was never the point of the Force in my mind. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. You're so right, Chris. And the issue of balance, the issue of the essence of the force being the thing that binds us, love being a a major factor there, is not nearly explored enough. It's why we don't have the same relationship to this new set of characters that we could have. Where is the fan ardor for the characters of this new trilogy? Well, love was not really much of a factor in the events of of that trilogy. It was about betrayal and conflict and misinterpretations and misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. It's why Mark Hamill was so disconcerted with his role. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was doing things that uh, the man who loved and would redeem his his father wouldn't really do unless something terrible happened to him (laughs) along the way to change him so much. So, yeah, these are things that slipped out of consideration, which need to be restored. Uh, There are some hints that we might be heading back in a good direction, Mm -hmm. Um, but we we need franchise visionaries who will guide it back there Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, fracturing uh, the the franchise and letting different people handle different aspects. Mm So in terms of things heading back to the right place, something you and I were chatting about before we started the podcast was this idea of, and it's a little heady, but postmodernism versus metamodernism. And you had talked about us being in an era, I, I suspect we're coming to the end of that era of deconstruction. Deconstruction is a common tool of postmodernism. It's a, a way of analyzing media through itself uh, or story through itself mm-hmm. meta modernism the theory is that you still use this this critical lens of deconstruction but ultimately that it's a crucible that burns away the more superficial elements and that what's left is the reaffirmation of the values so it's not just deconstructing but it's building back do you think that idea of tonal shift Do you subscribe to that idea that's happening? And where do you see the narrative going? I do. And gosh, Chris, you're reminding me how much I love you. Um, I love you too. We bicker sometimes on the social medias, and yet you're beautiful. I'm going to use some examples from the past 25 years or so to show you how we're cycling. In the late 1990s, you might remember that there were a series of movies where people's dreams were very foreboding, where we were wondering whether we were awake or asleep. This was the era of the Backstreet Boys and Bill Clinton, and everything was a party, and and everybody was all not mindful of what was going on in the rest of the world. But the movies were haunting us. Uh, uh, Dark City, The Matrix, Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it was like something was knocking and going, dude, so, this is where it, it was the end mm-hmm. of that the previous cycle. And so they were starting to say, uh, something's wrong. <laughs> you better watch out, right? The Fight Club was 1999, less than two years later. Everything we saw in that movie burst into reality Mm -hmm. and we were hit so hard right chris on september 11 2001 uh, our bells were rung and at first um uh, we did some hand wringing with our our popular culture oh was it us but the bell didn't stop ringing in fact 
bad actors said, you know what? We can take advantage of this rung bell. Let's keep it ringing so that we start to splinter into a bunch of different realities. And in fact, our social media enhanced that. Every human being became their own reality. And you know what we like to do when we see our reality and then get to see other people next to us? We like to tell them, your reality doesn't quite have it right. I'm going to assert my rightness on your wrongness. Right. We didn't just become a bunch of nations or even a bunch of communities the way that two communities can argue about their baseball teams. Mm-hmm. We became individuals who were arguing our version of reality against everyone else's. And this is dangerous. It's dangerous because it is unmooring us from a shared perception of reality. The deconstruction that we're experiencing, this postmodern world is a hazard that I haven't seen candidly, uh, Chris. I've studied the fall of empires, a major factor in the collapse of huge civilizations is when many people look at something and each one of them sees something completely different. That allows us to be ruled. That allows us to be dominated. That allows us to dissipate our collective power. So uh, where we are is at such a, a, a dangerous point in that time that we are either going to truly uh, fall apart and things can get dark and violent and world wars can emerge from that sort of thing, or we can flip ourselves over to experimental heading toward classic. And the way to do that, Chris, forgive me for being on my soapbox, is through collective journey narrative. Mm-hmm. A Each of us right now is on a hero's journey, that ancient cyclical uh, thing that goes on in our minds that Mm -hmm. says, I'm going to leave my house, battle the bad guy, grab the treasure and bring it home to my family, fortifying my community after many trials and tribulations, mostly, particularly recently, in terms of conflict, conflict, conflict. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we are networked in mm-hmm. ways that has not happened before in the history of humanity. So if all of us are doing that, we're going to destroy ourselves. We're going to fall mm-hmm. apart. Systemic narrative, which can be found in ancient indigenous cultures, the interlacing of perception, the use of signs and symbols as unifying factors And the recognition that the system that we're in, the story world, is flawed. And that flaw can be self-terminating. We are in trouble. Now, there are people who are benefiting from that flaw. They're making millions and millions of dollars. They are acquiring tremendous power. They send their clowns out to perpetuate this conflict so that they can maintain those flaws and and continue to benefit. And they have cronies and they convince people, the rank and file working Joes, that their way is the absolute right way. And anybody else in the system who doesn't agree must be the enemy. Uh, So all this is, it's perpetuating a collective journey narrative, this new narrative modality, which lends itself, by the way, to these massive universes and story worlds, Mm -hmm. is about the journey to reconciliation, Mm -hmm. uh, dynamic reconciliation. You're my enemy, it seems. But what if the two of us somehow in our dialogue if as long as we don't kill each other, <laughs> manifests a, a third idea that might be the solution, a third idea that might level us up so that we can reach more uh, uh, people and, and get their thoughts and ideas so that we can manifest things that don't exist in any one individual 
so that collectively we can heal the flaw in the system. There might be some fighting involved, I have to tell you. The, the, the people in power don't like that idea and will create conflict. So you have your action. You have your fun storylines. But if we don't do this, Chris, we're, there's a big problem. So in some ways, the movies that we're seeing, these multiverses and postmodern components to popular culture do echo and reflect what it is that we're contending with. Yeah. We're just all getting tired of it. And the hero's journey, we're what? At the demise, the fall, where we fucked up and now we need to be transformed, right? That's the next part of the hero's journey. We yeah. haven't quite done that yet. That, but here's why we haven't done it yet. Hollywood is terrible at illustrating the components of transformation. Yeah. They love to throw us in a cocoon and out comes a butterfly. Mm -hmm. uh, they throw Superman into a phone booth and out comes the uh, Clark Kent in the phone booth, out comes Superman. It needs to be illustrated wh what is what goes into enlightenment and transformation. Mm -hmm. We don't want woke shoved down our throats. We don't want to be told didactically we're wrong and, and these people are right, even if they are. <laughs> um, it needs to be shown to us uh, what, what has to happen. That's why the Spider-Verse movies are so wonderful. It mm. doesn't feel to, to most people that that uh, it's, it's wokeism is being shoved down our, our no. throat. We genuinely like this kid and want him to be all right. And we want him to succeed. Uh, in, I have in, a theory about Miles Morales because he is a very unique character. I think of all the <clears throat> recastings that have been done of comic book characters, Miles Morales is probably the most successful. And my theory for that is that um, he's a very different character from Peter Parker. And so he doesn't feel like he's more dimensionalized than a lot of the recasting kind of alt type characters. But in a lot of ways, he's very true to Peter Parker, uh, Peter Parker's story as Spider-Man. He's broke. He's a kid. He's got real world problems like you have. So it's just we've transplanted the concept of what made Peter Parker great. Brand it, essence. Yeah. Brand essence, Chris. Bendis simply wanted his own Spider-Man and was smart enough to understand the underpinnings, the fundamental essence of who that character was and put that into Miles. And that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Yeah, so you're reminding me, Bendis, right. didn't, Bendis didn't start with the idea of I'm going to make a, a Puerto Rican Spider-Man. He started with the idea that I want to reboot the Spider-Man story without the legacy. Isn't that right? That he didn't, that basically he didn't want the ties to the other stuff. That's right. Well, he was in a new universe. The the uh, Marvel had created a whole separate pocket universe with its own version of the characters and so forth. And it was a way to contemporize the concepts without destroying the Marvel universe proper. And um, it, it was a terrific idea because those more grounded versions of all those characters became the source material for a lot of the early Marvel Cinematic Universe and so forth. It, it just made it easier for creators to work with. So you're absolutely right. That was the way to go. How do you think the, the Spider-Verse movies, because they have some of the wildest takes, they've got Spider-Ham, they've got Spider-Man Noir, they've got so many different crazy versions. They have a lot of fun with it. And yet somehow as visually chaotic and from a storytelling standpoint, com complex, a a as much as those movies can be that, they somehow managed to avoid this pitfall of just falling apart into confusion and being okay. really coherent. How do you think they're able to do that? S somehow the filmmakers vibed into contemporary pop culture, what's going on in, in the social media of the coolest kids from a visual standpoint the latest music and so forth, and at the same time, created a, a narrative that we deeply care about. They put a family in the middle. Mm. How many of these other movies, the, the other movie this year with a family in it was Ant-Man, 
And you couldn't even tell that those people liked each other in that right. movie. Right. Do they even know each other? They're, 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 we see them for two minutes and then zoom, they're in some bizarre abstract fantasy land, which could have been just as compelling as the Spider-Verse. And yet, because we don't care about those people, it becomes just a mishmash. And that's too bad because we did care about them in earlier Ant-Man movies. We liked the cast and so forth, but all of it was dispatched. And that's a presumption that's made by the filmmakers. Well, you like them already, so we'll just throw them into this next thing. Whereas with Spider-Verse, the, the emotional through lines and the systemic aspect of coming of age and realizing things about yourself, including the darker aspect of yourself. The Miles Morales that is met at the end of the movie, I will bet you, is not evil Miles, is right. not an evil twin. He's a dude who grew up without the love and the wonderful aspects right. that our Miles had. His city, his world was corrupted. So it's going to be about enlightenment it's going to play out the yeah. wisdom that has made those movies so successful in the first place. And that speaks to the wisdom system and the narrative systems that we're talking about that are going to be successful for these contemporary franchises. Wow. You, you have me thinking that, that the, in the Spider-Man movies that have been successful recently, both um, the Miles Morales uh, Spider-Verse movies, but also Spider-Man Far From Home. Yes. The most emotionally powerful characters are the humans or the non-powered characters. Miles' father looms large over the entire Spider-Verse. And right. where they're headed, spoiler alert, is that you've got two Miles's, one who grew up with his father, the other one who didn't. And if you look at fatherlessness in our society especially among certain demographics. It's a very real dynamic that people live with. And so it feels very real. If you look at um, Peter Parker in Far From Home, it's Aunt May, who uh, is the moral character who tells him with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And he has that moment that we've seen in all these other Spider-Man movies. And it seems like those characters that are the moral center are the ones that really make spider-man spider-man and why you care i mean it, it's kind of absurd at one level that miles has got to save the multiverse but not get caught by his dad doing it mm -hmm. you know and, and we know that we're all headed to this world where his dad accepts who who miles is that's right that's the meta modernism starting to peek through to say okay that's it after all of this deconstruction we're going to use that lens to then reassert the values that made Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And that's the aspiration that you get to take home. You say metamodernism and I say collective journey. They're very similar in, in terms of what they're about. But Chris, you did throw me a little soapbox. It, it feels a little bit like um, millennials mm. feel a bit betrayed by their boomer or even Gen X parents because they're taking it out on our iconic characters wow. who often are depicted as loser schlubs in their old age. Right. Um, and audiences universally are, are not uh, fond of that. We don't want to see Indiana Jones uh, uh, or Han Solo be deadbeat dads who yeah. are, are on the couch drinking. <laughs> we don't want to see Superman be a deadbeat dad. There's a lot yeah. of deadbeat dads yeah. in Superman Reborn. Obi-Wan depressed, staring into space for long periods of time in, in that Obi-Wan series. Uh, uh, Luke Skywalker, um, kind of a deadbeat dad, you yeah. know, abandons everything and stares into space. I think that young people are having a different relationship with their parents today, and that it's not shining well on, on Gen Y and the new Gen A or whatever they're calling the the little kids. So those movies are not as successful. And I, I'd like them to move on from wrecking dads. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. It's a trope that I dislike, although I will say, ironically, in defense of one of the deadbeat dad moments, one of the films that I like the least, but I thought was interesting, the idea of subverting Luke and saying, okay, he was the new hope, and now he's lost hope. And that's where we find him. And 
I, I did tear up that scene at the end of the movie when he's dying and he fades away where he sees the twin sons because I thought that that takes him back to that moment on Tatooine where it all started. <clears throat> and so for me, it said, okay, he's come back to hope. He's come back to light. So he's gone through his own journey like his father. And maybe he has come to learn what it was like to become an adult and have to deal with all the hard things in the world and yet find your hope again. But it didn't play that way in the That's film. That's the point, uh, Chris. That's my only counter to that. Because, of course, I'm tearing up. It's the twin sons. But where was the argument for it? Uh, yeah. What were the steps that he took on that path? What happened to him that it was all gone? Was it just the, the incident with Kylo Ren? It, it just, nothing felt like it was enough. And nothing felt... And Ray did not serve the same function as Luke did for Vader in redeeming that character, neither did Kylo. So it felt a little slipshod in, in terms of the storytelling that should have made that a classic resonant moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings me to what James Gunn is trying to do with the reboot of DC. Because if you've been in the industry for a long time, you've heard about the Superman problem. And the Superman problem is that he's perfect and all powerful. So it's very hard to create conflict around him. But I think that um, what's interesting is five years, 10 years ago, when they tried this, their approach to make Superman accessible was to go grim dark and try to make him gritty and real and take away a lot of the things that we liked about the Christopher Reeve right. Superman that I think still looms so large over that franchise it feels like James Gunn is going back to that well, and maybe it's time for the world to have those good Midwestern values reasserted as sort of common values that we can share and come back to and aspire to. But can it work now? Are audiences too cynical, or is this exactly what we need? There's a term that we use at my company called embracing the narrative reversal mm -hmm. embrace the narrative reversal that's what i think could could help with superman what are all the questions one would ask of superman why do you draw the line at pulling cats out of trees and saving the occasional locomotive when i am surrounded by poverty <laughs> what are you solving for us and what are you not how are you constructing your ethos? What makes you decide what you're doing and what you're not doing? And how are you balancing that with your human life? Maybe some of that will be addressed. And some of the greatest Superman stories have touched on some of this, though not nearly to my level of satisfaction. I, I grew up in the projects uh, and would read Superman stories and wondered, well, when is he going to come here? <laughs> when am I going to see that story of mm -hmm. dealing with the, the, these systemic uh, horrors and, and so forth? There could be an answer that could be truly compelling and impact uh, this character on an emotional level, because those are heavy things to think about and consider. And you can create metaphors where he's punching stuff and, and, and so forth, but that would be a way to bring a Superman into the contemporary world. I am looking at the uh, other characters that James Gunn is casting, and now I'm seeing his kind of uh, goofy sense of humor and, and so forth. He's bringing in the nasty Green Lantern and a bunch of other kind of semi-obscure uh, uh, characters to complement the story. And it's anyone's guess how that's going to turn out. But I'd like superhero stories to take a look at us and where we are right now and be cool about what the solutions could be. Mm -hmm. So I have a thesis as well that we love these superhero things because we grew up in the 80s and 90s and that was the culture we grew up with. But to a certain degree, the millennials and Gen Z they don't have our boomer gen, gen X affiliations. Correct. What do you see as the new narrative, the new green shoots? When you look out there, we talked about Spider-Verse, which I think when you see it points the way to the future. But what are other things that you're seeing in that regard? I guess Barbie is another project that feels like it's fresh and it's pointing at something yeah. new. 
And here's why, and here's what I hope we'll be seeing. When you push through trauma and start to come to grips with trauma, and when there are global traumas, it can take 20 years to get over it. We're just about there. If you've spent a good portion of your life um, a grappling with trauma and exit it, you have to wonder, okay, well, who am I beyond this trauma? What kind of person am I? What do I stand for? And where do I go? What's possible now that I'm through this? And that's what Barbie does as a, a movie. It's why she leaves the Barbie world and comes into the real world because She's done with that. <laughs> she wants to uh, understand who she is as an individual, not as a brand. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is that kind of uh, uh, metamodernism. It's funny, it's a departure uh, uh, from the deconstruction mode, which we will see elements of in, in Barbie. Yes. Into this metamodernism mode where, uh, yeah, we can all be named Barbie, but we are individuals. And we have to think about who we are and what we stand for and how we're going to make the world a better place because it's all made of plastic right now. Do, do you see? And that's what's brilliant about the, the film. And I think we're going to see more of that in terms of uh, uh, new intellectual properties, new IP is going to be more about where am I on the spectrum? <laughs> and can that place on the spectrum be a good thing and can i bring both the perceived skills and flaws uh, uh to bear to raise my standard of living my quality of life mm -hmm. and then can that be used in an interlocking way with the others around me that i used to be fighting with that all we've done for the past 15 20 years is be at odds with each other can we get along and the, the final factor in all of that chris is that in order to accomplish that we need to change our relationship with language um, right now language is is highly weaponized and is being used to harm uh, e each other to the point where it's hard to crack a joke you don't want to think yeah. three times before you send that text. <laughs> I'm a good person. And I think back at, at everything I've ever said in an office <laughs> because someone somewhere could say Gomez is an asshole. Mm. Uh, that's no way to live. A lot of that has to do with the weaponization of language, not with behavior. We want to be better. And it's wonderful that right. we're asking each other to behave better to treat every woman as if they were the rock mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so forth. That's great. But if every single thing is going to be offensive to somebody, we're not going to get anything done. And I believe that it's become so tiresome, particularly to the younger generations, that they're going to start to want to swing the pendulum away from that sort of thing. And we're going to start to see these things metaphorically. We already do in super subcultures, mm. uh, the, the, the new humor, the new music that's happening when you dig deep enough into Spotify or what have you, is going to start to bubble up and maybe get us out of this situation. It's interesting. Quentin Tarantino recently said, that he thinks that the conformist film eras are the worst. He points to the 50s, the 60s, the 80s. I disagree okay. with him on the 80s. I think the 80s has some of the greatest films of all time, uh, <laughs> but we're from a slightly different generation. His critique of the 80s is that it's all saccharine. It's all bullshit. There's nothing real about it. I would call that the aspirational aspect that people like, but we've certainly been in a time where things are censorious and there's lots of things you can't say it feels like are we on the cusp and i'll kind of make this the last question are we on the cusp of another 70s 90s explosion of creativity and when, when this era is over isn't that what comes next 
I'm so glad you asked that question as a finale here, Chris, because uh, a part of what I do, I'm in my 50s, and yet uh, it's integral for me to understand the direction of popular culture and to advise my clients on story and where it's going and what's going to manifest in three years, because that's how long it takes anything to get done, um, uh, is that I watch very closely what's going on in youth culture. And young people are learning, finally, to use the tools and, and to express their individualism and identities and start to create art that is unlike anything that we've seen before. And it's fascinating. And it picks and chooses because all of pop culture just flattened because the sum total of everything is easily and readily available you can pick from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s and mix and match them and then infuse what it is that you want to say through that mix of iconography. And it's thrilling and delightful and scary and edgy. I like it because I'm a little afraid. Uh, and yet there's something hopeful uh, about it. The lost pandemic generation that just wants to connect by pressing flesh together rather than uh, mm -hmm. nose screens. And that's very, very exciting. I think that's where we're going. Well, I'll leave it there on that word of hope. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation. So thanks so much. And if people want to learn more about you, talk to you, how do they get a hold of you? If you follow me on Twitter at Jeff underscore Gomez, I do pump out a lot of Ultraman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's my thing and, and I have a lot of followers there, but I, I'm, I'm going to mix it up on, on, uh, on Twitter. Um, LinkedIn is, is the best for professionals. Um, uh, I talk about a lot of serious stuff, a lot of industry stuff, and, and uh, I, I pull apart what I'm doing to show people, even with Ultraman, uh, what, what formulas for success are, systemic narrative, collective journey, all that stuff is discussed on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. It's been a great conversation. Fantastic. Chris, this was wonderful. 